My friends at Steel, welcome you to the new year. And the folks at Steel, S-T-I-H-L, they want to give you more than just the right tools for the job. They want to make sure you have the advice you need from people you can trust. And with over 10,000 authorized local steel dealers across the country, they make it easy to find steel products and get the guidance and everything you need to do the job right. Whether you're a homeowner taking on a backyard project or pro-tackling the job site, your local steel dealer has you covered. Again, that's S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com. Find the local dealer near you, steelusa.com. You can find all of their award-winning products. Spring's around the corner. We're still in the midst of winter, obviously. They have the product to help you get the job done right. Go check them out. Again, S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com, steelusa.com. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, the Wolverines are national champs. Michigan wore Washington down. The Broncos are in football purgatory. And Drew's interview of the week is former Rockies pitcher Latroy Hawkins, remembering the magical 2007 season. You know, we started playing some incredible baseball. And I think the turning point for me where I thought, like, we got something special going is when Todd Helton hit that home run against the Dodgers at our place off of Saito. Subscribe to the Drew Goodman Podcast wherever you find podcasts and tell your friends in Ann Arbor. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Hail, hail Michigan. They are the champions of college football 2023. So with that, Jim Harbaugh and the Maze in Blue are national champions. Michigan, I don't think it was a shock. Uh, especially as the Final Four unfolded. Am I allowed to say Final Four? Is that just a basketball thing? Um, But uh, we talked about it last week. I thought Michigan was going to run the football and shorten the football game against Washington and that they ultimately would prevail. I was hoping that it would be a closer football game, and for a while it was. I mean, it really turned out to be several different games all rolled into one about 10 15 minutes in it looked like michigan was going to boat race washington it was just going to be terrible and then somehow washington hung in there they make it 17 10 at halftime michael Penix on fourth down throws a touchdown pass oh by the way was this going through your head on the two occasions that Washington in that first half had the ball deep in the red zone. They have one of the best quarterbacks in college football. They are the premier throwing team among major college programs, at least they were this year. And they didn't throw the ball with Michael Penix. They tried to run it with Michael Penix. I mean, he ran it on the ground. And then they literally tried to run it with Michael Penix on, on a on a quarterback uh, sweep. And finally, on fourth down, late in the first half, they threw the football and he made a really good throw uh, on a crossing route for a touchdown. And so it went from looking like a blowout to a really good game. And Washington, down a touchdown, was going to get it to start the second half. Ball that uh, got deflected on pressure right in his face, which was a continuing theme throughout the night, produced an interception on the first snap of the second half for Michigan. And, uh, you know, slowly um, but methodically, Michigan 
wore Washington down. And it, and it happened up front um, where many people thought they would be able to dominate, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. And they ultimately rushed for 303 yards. They played bully ball. And, you know, you had uh, a guy that many people didn't know. Everybody knew about Blake Corum uh, going into the game. But uh, very few people knew about Donovan Edwards. And his first two carries, he rips off, it looks like a 40-yard dash to the end zone where he was bottled up initially, but Washington had no gap integrity. And uh, he ended up going untouched into the end zone on both of those. And, And that turned out to be the difference in the game and the ability against the Joe Moore offensive line of the year, the ability of Michigan with a four-man rush almost primarily throughout that game to get pressure and pressure in the face of the quarterback, not necessarily on the edge. And we talk about that a lot with quarterbacks, that um, they can step up the good ones in the pocket. They can move the launch point a little bit. And Penix is very capable of doing that. He's not necessarily... Uh, the runner that his counterpart in the game was. But he's been able to do that in the past. But when a quarterback has pressure right in their face, when it comes from you know the three techniques or a nose and it's right at you, it changes that quarterback's ability to be not only proficient in throwing the football, but comfortable. And as the evening wore on, you could see how uncomfortable and beat up Michael Penix was. Now, as great as he was against Texas, um, I think maybe in many people's eyes, he took a a step back when you evaluate him as a a draft pick, a high draft pick in the NFL. We'll get into that more uh, in a moment. Uh, So Jim Harbaugh wins a national championship, and you have to give him, and I know for many begrudgingly, a lot of credit. He took over that program seven years ago, And his mission, his charge, was to get the Wolverines back on top of the college football world and to be able to to compete with Ohio State. I remember they had lost a boatload in a row. Well, now, as we sit here and converse and reminisce on the 2023 college football season, which always ends in early uh, January of the next year, Michigan is number one. Michigan has defeated Ohio State three consecutive times. And the way the world works in those bitter, bitter rivalries among the Blue Bloods, it's put Ryan Day's job potentially going forward uh, on the line if he doesn't uh, turn that around against, uh, as they say in Columbus, that school up north. But Jim Harbaugh has put Michigan back on top. It took a while. Didn't happen overnight. But they're on top. And he did it in the way he said he would do it. They were really, really physical. And you can still win uh, in that manner, uh, evidently. And I know it's controversial for many, but Michigan deserved to be national champs. And I'm glad, as we've kicked it around here and every other sports program in America has kicked it around for months now, uh, the college football playoff will rightfully expand to 12. Because I, I will hold to what I said earlier and what many people believe that it may be Michigan and Georgia 
the two best teams in college football. But uh, congrats to the Maize and Blue as they are national champs. This takes us in a detoured fashion to your Denver Broncos, who completed the season in unspectacular fashion, losing to the Raiders yet again. They finish at 8-9. Uh, they weren't overly competitive in that football game. Uh, the spark that Jared Stidham was hoping to give the Broncos never really occurred. They scored 30 points in, uh, in his two ball games combined. And the Broncos are back where they've been since Peyton Manning exited stage left or stage right, whichever way he left. Uh, they're searching for a quarterback. Except they're really in a quandary, as you know well, because the Broncos are in a financial quandary and they have no draft capital. So I'll weigh in on this like everybody else. What would I do if I was in charge? I think the best course of action for the Broncos, they're not a bad football team. They're not a good football team. They're like many others. They're decidedly mediocre. And eight and nine after 17 games would represent that. And I am a big believer in the old Bill Parcells line, you are what your record says you are. I don't like the woulda, coulda, shoulda for any team in any sport. Because you, you always do it one way, the way that it fits your narrative from a positive standpoint. You never look back and say, well, we stole that one. I mentioned this a, a few weeks ago when giving an epilogue on the University of Colorado's football season and, and Colorado State University's football season. And, you know, folks up in Fort Collins say, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, we could have won seven, maybe even eight football games when they won five. Well, you always talk about the near misses, like for them, it was Utah State, it was UNLV, it was University of Colorado in that overtime loss. But you don't mention that it was a flat miracle you won against Boise State, where in actuality, Boise State probably should have won that game yet again. So again, I digress for a moment, but the Broncos are 8-9. and nine. That's not, they're not awful. The goal for Denver, and bless their heart, it's always been this way because of their great history, has been to win a Super Bowl. It's not been a just get in the playoffs, that sort of thing. So how would I start to turn this thing forward? They are not, in all likelihood, going to come up with the guy that's going to be their quarterback over the next 10 or 12 years miraculously in the offseason. I would continue to strengthen this football team by moving backwards in the draft. In other words, they only have six draft picks right now. Talking about lack of draft capital. They have a first and a third. They're going to draft number 12. I would move back. I would acquire uh, a couple of picks, maybe more, to move back in that first round. Continue to strengthen the team. And if there's a quarterback you're intrigued by, whether it's a, a J.J. McCarthy later in the first round, I don't know how far Michael Penix is going to slip. I still think he's got a ton of ability. You worry about the injury history. Um, he can really spin it. Um, he's really accurate. I know he was off a little bit. I don't think you should judge anyone on one of their poor days, if you will. 
Um, nor should you always just look at when they were at their absolute best. Uh, but you, you have to look at the whole body of work. And the whole body of work, especially in 2023 and really in 2022 as well, it's pretty impressive. So I, I haven't abandoned ship on Michael Penix. But for again, from the Broncos' perspective, if you can move back and continue to strengthen your team in certain areas and then maybe grab a quarterback if you like one later in the first round or maybe even in the second round and try to develop that guy and maybe you play, you know, Stidham for another year. You cross your fingers, you get really lucky like the the 49ers did with a guy like Brock Purdy. You know, but that that Caleb Williams pedigree quarterback is not going to miraculously show up at Dove Valley in the next number of months. The Broncos are in a bad place. But you can continue to be strive to be really good in all other areas and maybe get game management and occasional outstanding play from whomever that quarterback is while you start to develop another one or in a position to truly get somebody that has A-plus pedigree, that's what I would do. And that's why I also would not trade Pat Sertan. When you talk to NFL executives, when you listen to NFL coaches, when you observe the game closely like you and I both do, You have to have, to succeed in the NFL, you have to have a quarterback. We know that. That's a given. But you also have to have some playmakers on offense. Defensively, you need edge guys to rush the passer, and you need corners. That's why those guys are so valued and so highly paid. The Broncos have an elite corner in Sertan. They don't have to be a million miles away. They ain't winning a Super Bowl next year. I understand that. But I would build on your strengths and have that try to, at least in the near term, make up for your deficiency at quarterback. And maybe you can get decent play there. And that's why I didn't quite understand fully the Russell Wilson deal in that Was he maybe the same player that he was when he was taking Seattle to Super Bowls? No. Did he always play well? No. Did he hold the football too long at times? Yes. But in comparison to last year, he played solid football at different times this year. And it's why they went on a little bit of a run. He was a big part of that. It's why they came back late in a couple of games, some that didn't turn ultimately in their direction. So if they can get solid quarterback play moving forward, move back in the draft to acquire more draft capital and try to enhance their strengths right now in the near term. Because again, there ain't no miracle around the corner. They've made their bed and they have to lie in it right now. That would be my strategy. Uh, for the Broncos. And again, I haven't jumped ship on Michael Penix. I think Michael Penix has a chance, has a chance, it's hard to evaluate these guys, to be a, a good quarterback in the NFL, despite the numerous injuries and despite how he kind of hobbled off the field uh, yesterday. I was at the ABCA 
this past week. If you follow social media, maybe you, you caught that. The ABCA is the American Baseball Coaches Association. It's, it's a great gathering because it's not just, uh, you know, coaches. Uh, it is that. Coaches from the high school level, coaches from uh, all levels of college baseball, from junior colleges to NAI, D3, D2, on up to, you know, the Jay Johnsons of the world at, at LSU who are at the top of the uh, food chain. And it also features a, a ton of people from professional baseball, coaches, front office executives at times, guys in uh, development, farm directors. So it was, it, was, it was great to be at. This year it was held down in Dallas, and there are literally thousands of people, great speakers. Uh, you can learn a lot on uh, different elements of baseball from uh, coaching and drills to philosophies to the mental side of the game. Um, so it, it really is, is so enjoyable. I've always wanted to go, had opportunities to go in the past. And, and because I travel so much, I've always said, you know what, boy, I don't know if I want to get on another plane. But I'm so glad I went uh, this year. It, it was great to connect with a lot of people that I had not seen, coaches from college level, high school level, professional level, and run into people I hadn't seen in a while, including our guest this week. Latroy Hawkins. Now, let me give you a little background on uh, on Hawk, as he's known. First of all, currently, he is a member of the front office of the Minnesota Twins. He also does a fair number of their games in the booth as an analyst on television, along with another former Rocky, by the way, Justin Morneau. And there's a third member of the former twin, former Rocky contingent that is also part of the front office of the Twins, and that is another guy I ran into, Michael Kadire. And we had Cuddy on, um, I don't know, was it last year or a year and a half ago? At some point, we'll have him on again. He's a great guy. One thing that, that all those guys have in common that I've ever met with the, with the Twins is they're all, as I like to say, really bright adults. You know, not a lot of baggage with the guys that, that performed for the Twins through the years. Kadire falls under that category, Morneau falls under that category, and without question, Latroy Hawkins falls under that category. And what a career for Hawkins, a two-time Rocky, 2007 during their World Series run where, you know, he did some closing but was a setup guy, came back in, in 2014 and half of 2015 before being traded along with Troy Tulowitzki to Toronto, where again, he was a closer and a setup guy. He pitched 21 years in the big leagues for 11 different teams. He is 10th all-time in appearances by a pitcher. Pretty, uh, pretty remarkable career. A deep thinker, fun guy to visit with. I uh, start out our interview with Hawk, uh, I think, saying that he's like the mayor down there because he makes his uh, home now in in Prosper, Texas, which is a, a Dallas suburb. He was there every day, and uh, it was great to catch up with uh, Hawk, and I think you will uh, enjoy this conversation on a myriad of topics with the uh, former Rocky on a couple of occasions, Latroy Hawkins. You are like the mayor here. You like the ABCA, huh? I love it. Just a chance to be in an environment where every conversation you have pretty much is going to be about baseball. 
And it doesn't get any better than that for us lifers. I want to take you back before we go to 07 and, and some of the great times. Because for you, the resume is ridiculously long. You, you played 35 years in the big leagues, and I'm exaggerating only slightly. But at what point in time did you pick baseball over hoops? Because if memory serves me correctly, Larry Bird's old school, didn't they offer you out of high school? Yeah, I had a scholarship offer from Indiana State out of high school to play basketball. In the state of Indiana, Indiana State is like mid-major. Like We got some bigger universities around like Purdue, IU, uh, Notre Dame, so and Butler. But, you know, I, you know, I was a pretty good basketball player, but I wasn't up on that level. I mean, I could hold my own, but I probably would have went to a big school like that and not play. So I picked a school where, you know, I knew I could go and play. And, you know, thank God that I was a better baseball player than basketball player. And my grandfather told me that early on. And um, like I've always have throughout my life, I always listened to him and he was right. Now, like a lot of guys, you were a starter and then got converted. Was that a difficult time for you? Was there self-doubt creeping in that, hey, can I really make it when they said, hey, you know, we don't see you as a starting pitcher? I don't know about self-doubt. It was one of those situations where I knew I wasn't that good at it. And you got to understand, like when I was in the minor league in two years, I went 15 and 5 and then 18 and 6. So I won 33 games and only lost 11. And my ERA was under three. So I kind of dominated my way through the minor leagues. And then I wasn't ready to be in the major leagues, but it's a situation where we were rebuilding in Minnesota. I had the opportunity to go up and be there earlier than I should have been. And when you're there and you shouldn't be there, it's a really good chance you're going to take your lumps. And I took my lumps. I really took my lumps as a starting pitcher. I had 99 career starts. I had some good ones. had a lot more bad ones. Um... But I like to say have those bad games and all the games I started made me a better reliever because once I got tra- I transitioned to the bullpen, having guys on base didn't bother me because I had so many on base when I was a starter. So I take that little positive out of you know being a terrible starter that it helped me be a better reliever. Did you enjoy the adrenaline rush of, of being a reliever coming in and and the game, you know, because throughout your career, game was on the line. You pitched, a, you know, you were a closer quite a bit. You were a setup guy. But it was typically you were coming in and you were protecting a one or two run lead late. You know, now sitting here, you know, years removed from the game of playing, I I think to be in that situation, if you're going to pitch in the back end of the bullpen, you got to be adrenaline junkie. Guys show it differently. I probably didn't look like I was adrenaline junkie. I try to be cool, calm, and collective. I tried to act like I struck you out before. I tried to act like I gave up a home run before. I tried to act like every I did everything before because for me, I wasn't a guy that could be up and down, up and down. I was best when I was even keel. So for me, I was like, just, I, had to, I, had to, I had to always try to keep my composure because I never wanted to get too high, I never wanted to get too low. And I think that worked best for me to be able to execute my pitches. I wanted to make sure I was breathing. I wanted to make sure I was... I was calculated. I was taking my time. I wasn't rushing, getting through, you know, trying to get through a hitter and making a mistake. I tried to make sure I was all those things. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. And I always tell people, you might get me three times, but I'm going to get you seven out of ten. So, I mean, like, I'm going to take my chance and I mess around and get you eight out of ten. Then I'm really on top. And I knew I was going to give up hits because I wasn't going to strike out a lot of guys out. 
I, I accepted that, and, and I was okay with that. So I tried to make sure I, you know, make guys put the ball in play as soon as possible in the, in the count. And if I can get three outs in less than 12 pitches, I think I did a pretty good day, and it gives the, the manager opportunity to use me the next day and hopefully the next day after that. Was there a guy or a couple of guys that, that you feel were maybe your mentors or guys that you learned a lot from early in your career that, that you were able to you know pass it along down the road? I think Bob Tewksbury was a one starter in Minnesota that I, I latched on to because I, growing up I saw him pitch in, Cle- and, um, in St. Louis. Uh, Kevin Tappy was, Cap- was a starter at the time. And then we had um, Rick Aguilera and... Eddie Guerrero, Mike Jackson, Bobby Wells. So we had some guys that I was able to, to watch them, see how they went about their business, and learn as much as much as possible from them. What do you remember most about the 07 season and that and that wild run with the Rockies? What I remember most about that was we started off the season just not good at all. We knew we had a, we knew we had something. We didn't know what we had, and it took us a while to really get, you know, to really form that that bond, that trust with each other, to form that, you know, get that continuity. It took us a while to get that going, and once we did, you know, we started playing some incredible baseball. We started pitching, caught the ball. We were able to hit, get timely hitting, hitting with two strikes. I mean, we were able to do all of that, and I think the turning point for me where I thought, like, we got something special going is when Todd Helton hit that home run against the Dodgers at our place off of Saito. And that year, Soldier Boy, the song came out, Zoom, Soldier Boy. And when Todd touched home plate, he did that Zoom. He had never done it in the clubhouse before, so he caught all of us entirely off guard. And that was I think that was the turning point for us. That's interesting. Because that's out of character. I mean, totally. he, right? I mean, totally. Todd was like stoic and right? Yeah, he was still, you're right, completely out of character and he never practiced it, not in front of us. He was probably at home doing it in a mirror. <laughs> I can see Todd doing it. And when he did it, it like summed up our season. Like, you know, that's how close we became because he got so comfortable and we were playing so well and and we, we, we jailed so much that he was comfortable stepping out of himself and doing something he probably never would have done before. He just had one of the biggest home runs in, in you know, in, in the Rockies history. Like, one of the bigger home runs. So, I think that was cool, and just seeing so many young guys come up and like have incredible seasons. Garrett Atkins, Tula Whiskey, Holiday. You know, we had Tavares, Willie in center field. We had a lot of guys step up and and do some things that you know play like a whole, a veteran team. And we had a lot of young guys. Yeah. Speaking of Todd, uh, obviously uh, an important day coming up. Hopefully on the twenty third, he he gets the call that uh, he's deserving of and. And goes to the Hall of Fame. As many great players as you played with in, in your long career, uh, we have a little smile on your face if, uh, if if you hear that day that he goes in. I think that's going to be absolutely amazing because you know when you when you're around a guy, when you when well when you're looking from afar, you only see the guy what he's doing on on the field. But when you're around a guy, you're on the team, when you get to see what type of person he is. And I know Todd has had his issues since he's left baseball, but that doesn't make you not a great dude. He is a, I thought he was a fantastic individual, man. He loved the game. He played it harder than anybody. And he loved his teammates. He loved his teammates. He was always the stoic guy. 
so we knew how far to push him. But he embraced it, and he loved every second of it. And he just – he was the ultimate teammate. Like, he was the ultimate teammate, especially – you know how comfortable you have to be to get out – step outside of yourself and join into something that the team had embraced – Todd probably never danced that much in his life until 2007. But just having a teammate to go in the Hall of Fame, that's special. I had David Ortiz go in last, well, summer of 2022, and I was there. And it, it was a special moment just because just being a part of watching, being a part of a guy doing amazing things. And Todd could hit, and he could play some first base too. Absolutely. You know, you know what's funny? When I think of hell. And, and you would know this better than anyone because you were teammates and, and, you, and you lived together, is sneaky, funny, dry wit, and flat-out crazy. Like I always, one of the stories I love telling is, is Preston Wilson was going to his locker, getting before, you know, they, you guys had already hit, and he's going to put on his game pants. They're gone because Preston had like three knocks on a couple of homers the day before. Helton's wearing them. Stole him out of his locker. He goes, there are hits in there. Does that See, not sound like your old teammate? That's all. That's all time. He was so intense about the game. He was so locked in. And, you know, when you get guys like that, you, you sit and watch them. I remember sitting and just watching him when I first got to Colorado in 07 in spring training. And he was like that in spring training. I was like, okay, I'm going to see if he's the same way during the season. I'm watching him like, nobody works harder. Nobody's more prepared. And nobody loves the game more than Ty. And it was just it was just a pleasure being a part of it. Like a lot of times guys go, you're not a part of it. I was actually a part of him, part of his journey to the to the Hall of Fame. And hopefully he gets in. If you don't get in this year, he's going to get in the Hall of Fame. You cannot deny what he was able to do with a bat and a glove on his hand. Absolutely. You know what's wild? You, you are now, for those that don't know, you broadcast for the Minnesota Twins. You are part of their front office as well. There's something about the Twins because when I think back to the history of the Rockies and I think of some of their better teams and I think of some of their, quite honestly, better guys, not only on the field but off the field as well, just important. I think of yourself. I think of Michael Kadire. I think of a guy that you're, you're still working with and Justin Morneau is doing television for the Twins. What do they got cooking up there in the water? You know, it all boils down to scouting, man. You know, it starts at the bottom. It starts with those guys that nobody really talks about. Those guys are away from their families 300 days out of the year. They checking every box and making sure they're drafting the right guys for that organization. And I think over the years, the Twins, the twins have been successful doing that. We hadn't won a World Series since 1991, but we've um, we put together, we've you know got some high character individuals along the way yeah there's no question about that because i honestly i'm not just saying it because i'm talking to you you know that that uh the three of the better dudes that have played for the rockies yourself cuddy and and, and justin morneau over the years and, and obviously you're talented as baseball players one of the other things i remember about when you were with the rockies on two different occasions is when i'd see in the clubhouse and we chat about this you wouldn't remember this but You've always been an avid reader, and so you don't always see you don't always see guys reading books in the clubhouse. You would see Latroy Hawkins on a couch reading, not Sports Illustrated, you know, in a clubhouse. I, you know what? When you play a long time, you're the young guy, you're the middle aged guy, and then you get to be the old guy. 
And I tried to watch the old guys, the older guys, as much as possible. And I remember Bob Tewksbury, he used to drink wine on the plane and paint. And paint. On the plane? On the plane. Wow. Sit in the exit row, this is wine, and paint. He painted a picture of uh, Paul Mahler on deck at, at Wrigley Field and did one for every player on the team. And, you know, and then I played with Nobar Garcia-Parr, and Nomar was a reader. And... We were out one night, and he was like, oh, what type of books you read? And I'm like, I can't read, man. I used to fall asleep in the bed. And i never forget. I got, um, what book did I, oh, I can't. My first book I read in the major leagues, um, The Outlier, not The Outlier. Um, he wrote the same book, Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, um, so I've read most the of tipping point. Stuff. tipping point. The Tipping Point. Yes. I read The Tipping Point, and I was like, this is awesome. This is awesome. And I started reading a lot of self-help books. And I probably read for like six years in the big leagues. Then I stopped reading. And I started listening to audio. So now I listen to audio. Now I'm in school, so I don't do nearly... I'm not reading for fun. <laughs> I'm reading for comprehension to pass the test now. But I do listen to audios. I'm audio. I'm an audio guy now, for sure. What are you studying? I didn't know that you were back in school. Yeah, I started my fourth semester. So finished up my second year of sociology. Um, you know, people say, why are you doing it? It's like, you get to a point in your life, like, there's little goals that, milestones that you want to check in. I never had that opportunity because I started my professional career the day after I graduated from high school. I played at 18. I played until I was 42 years old. When I got out of the game, I was, you know, exhausted from playing the game. I had so many things I wanted to attempt to do and I wanted to do. Got past all that. Now it's like, you know what? I need another challenge. I need something to to not have an idle mind. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to get me a degree. I'm gonna I'm gonna take some classes at the junior college. So it don't cost me too much. If I don't want to do it, if I can start some class, like it's too hard, I can just drop out. Sixty two dollars a credit hour. Got into it. And I'm like, okay. It's all starting to come back to me. Not good with numbers. I had algebra. I passed it, but it was the toughest thing for me. But reading comprehension sociology and i love people i love to know what makes us think what makes us do things and sociology was a, like it was perfect for me when i read it, i said that's what i want i want a degree in sociology and you know what i know i'm the type of guy I put my mind some to it i'm gonna finish it especially after i got past that first semester and you know at the end of the end of the summertime i have two years in and Hopefully I can knock out the next two in, in a year and a half. Good for you. I had a sociology minor, by the way. You know what? Um, Jeff Houston, who you know, one of my partners, he got 10 years in the weekend in the big leagues. And he had, I think he was about a semester short or two semesters short when he left the University of Wyoming and started his professional career. He, he felt like it was really important to go back and still get that degree. And, and many years later... He did just just what you're doing now. So I I can't commend you enough because you don't need it. You've been very successful. You continue to be successful. But that's good. It's also you can tell the kids, right? Set an example. You're right. And I got a daughter who has one semester left of college, and she's taking this semester off. Well, she's taking a year off, and she told me, hey, you know, Dad, I want to take a year off. But you got to make sure you go back, man. And I got nephews and stuff. I want them to see me walk across the stage. My brother, both my brothers have college degrees. So, you know, I was like, you know what? All right, we're about to start something. So my nephews, when they have kids, hey, my my great uncle graduated from college, and hopefully we can start something that 
start a legacy of you know excellence and you know and getting degrees. Excellent point. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your godson. It's been a little tough this year, tougher for the, uh, they won a division again, but for those that don't know, Pat Mahomes is, uh, is Hawks, uh, godson, pretty talented baseball player, but he also made the right choice becoming a quarterback. He definitely made that the right choice. Um, his dad and I always, you don't have to play baseball because it's been around your entire life. You don't have to do it. You do not. And, you know, it's one of those things you let him make the choice. And he made the choice. He wanted to do something that, that didn't come natural to him. And that shows you what type of young man he is because he could have easily took the route that in baseball where he's always played baseball. He's always been in, in, around baseball, always been in a clubhouse. Football didn't come that way for him. You know, he could get out there and grind it out and learn the position and, and wing it a little bit. And, you know, he's an intelligent young man, photographic memory. And he was able to, you know, get a scholarship to go to Texas Tech. Opportunity playing in the NFL in his first seven years, he's done some inc- amazing things. And, you know, when people ask me, I say, he set the bar so high, so when you have a season like this, it seems like it's a dud. And it's really not. Like, I mean, he's having a good season, you know, but not to his standards. You know, he set the bar so high and won an MVP when he had 5,000 passing yards, 50 touchdowns, like something ridiculous. And the second year in the league, so he set the bar so high that if he's not reaching those those numbers every year, it looked like he's having a down year. But you know what? They they've had to they've had to deal with a lot of adversity this year. You know, and not saying they hadn't done with it, dealt with it before. It's more glaring now because the adversity that they're dealing with is determining whether they win games or not. And they lost some games on some you know some plays where they should have made. They lost some plays on some interceptions he's thrown fumbles and things like that but I still think they do have a chance if everything can come together they're still one of the better teams and and their defense is pretty damn good this year their defense is pretty good if the offense can get going it could be a pretty good run in the playoffs sure you could be you know obviously you break down baseball for a living you can break down football too that was pretty good synopsis only the Chiefs that's it only the Chiefs only the Chiefs hey you know what though I don't I've I've never uh, met Patrick Mahomes but from afar, and I think this is part of his greatness. Obviously, he's, he's really talented and, and gifted. But part of part of his appeal is I don't know the guy, but there's like a gravitational pull, like beautiful smile. He's obviously a bright guy, like you said. You he has the it factor, right? So you want to be around him. You can tell, like I know, like he and Travis Kelsey obviously are best friends. There's something about him, isn't there? Yeah, he has the factor, but his dad had the factor. Is that right? Yeah, his dad played eight years in the major leagues, played in Japan, but his dad had the factor. His dad had that personality where he can command a room. He's funny, witty, super intelligent. So, you know, he's he's really a chip off the old block because he's, he's, he's very, very, him and his dad are like twins. They're like twins. Yeah. So just being, a, you know, being around them and just seeing the success he's had and knowing I've you know been knowing him his entire life it's cool to see it is really cool to see and you know you go to a kid that you know coming to your house to shop you know going in my closet getting my shoes and all this stuff now I go to his house and shop <laughs> yeah want to know what that's probably a pretty good house to go shop in Hawk it's great to see you number one number two you got the it factor so I gotta let you make uh, make yourself on the way and keep uh, politicking and uh, and running for mayor here 
Thanks, Drew. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Continued success on that. It's always good to to see Hawkins. He's one of those guys that you know when you visit with him and and then you head off in the other direction. You have a smile on your face. You always feel like, man, that was fun. That was good. Glad I had that conversation. And uh, we ran into each other a few different times uh, over the weekend. And uh, he's doing well. He's doing good things with the Twins. Former seventh-round pick out of a high school in Gary, Indiana, by the Minnesota Twins. And he played 21 years. That is uh, one heck of a career. Uh, Before we get on out of here... Avalanche have been playing entertaining games, sometimes too entertaining. Their goaltending has uh, at times raised an eyebrow. Uh, As we tape this, Georgiev and the Avalanche knocked off a terrific Boston Bruins team in overtime, actually in a shootout, 4-3. Val Nechuskin got the uh, game winner uh, in the shootout. Uh, But I think you have to be a little concerned right now with where the Avalanche are from a goaltending perspective. But it is still early. It is still uh, the first portion of uh, January, so we have a ways to go. But uh, Avs have been fun to watch. Nuggets continue to be fun to watch. And uh, and now we transition to that, uh, that time of year from a baseball perspective in front of spring training, uh, focusing in on the NHL, NBA, and a lot on college hoops because there's still two outstanding programs on the men's side Uh, to watch in our region with uh, Colorado State, nationally ranked, and the University of Colorado. By the way, Sea Mountain West has three teams in the uh, top 25 this week. Pretty impressive. All right, that'll do it. Uh, We'll uh, get together again in seven days. Always appreciate you. Once again, a big happy new year, and uh, we'll talk soon. Stay well.